0: Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dimitri Filipovich and joining me is my buddy John Mattis. John, what's going on, man?
1: Not a whole lot. Just uh, just getting through that first day after the deadline, minus the weekend. Uh, still trying to process things, which obviously sets up well for what we're about to tackle.
0: Yeah, it does. First show post-deadline for me as well. Uh had a bit of a chance here over the weekend to reflect tie up loose ends see where we're at you know the dust has settled a little bit although I still would like to see more games with some of these guys on their new teams to to really g- get our sea legs but uh it's been a while since we did a mailbag here on the PDO guys just cuz we were so busy over the past week or two with kind of like more pressing trade stuff so now we have the benefit of taking a step back and 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 answering some listener questions and, and having some fun uh the way we were we we're doing previously so that's the plan for today we've uh we've asked the listeners to come through with questions they've delivered we've picked five or six of our favorite ones that i think allow us to cover the most ground and so we're going to get into it so here's the first question from kyle kyle asks who is the odd man out on d in boston and the reason why this is an interesting question is because they've played five games now since acquiring Dimitri Orlov from the washington capitals prior to the deadline and they're kind of left with seven nhl defensemen that i think they'd ideally like to play so they've been basically alternating who sits in game one after the trade. They sat Connor Clifton, then they sat Matt Grizzlick, then they sat Brendan Carlo, then they sat Derek Forbert, and then most recently they sat Matt Grizzlick again. And there was some talk that in that most recent game against the Rangers on Saturday afternoon, that was the lineup that they would like to start the postseason with. Obviously, they have some injuries up front with Taylor Hall and, and uh, Nick Foligno, and we'll see if they come back. But at least on the blue line, it seems like the fact that they circled back to Grizzlick again um indicates at least that this is probably the way they're leaning, how they want to start the postseason. And I think that's entirely fascinating, right? Because someone is clearly gonna have to sit until there's injuries and them choosing Grizzlick. I don't know how you feel about that, but it's it's certainly a strange one considering he was like basically playing top pairing minutes for them before.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you do a process of elimination, it's not difficult to get to Grizzlick as the odd man out because Obviously, Orlov and McAvoy not going anywhere. Lindholm as well. That's three guys off the uh, the table there. I think Carlos, that second pair right D, it just it makes too much sense. I don't think uh, what they were doing, taking him out of one game, uh, was much of an indication of the future plans there. And then so then you get down to the third pair. And on Saturday, Forbert and Clifton, and I don't know about you, Dimitri, but Clifton is a, is a no-go there in terms of taking him out of the lineup. Just a very effective, defensive-minded, smaller guy. But you know, mm-hmm. he plays big, kind of like Orlov in that way. Um, Forbert kills penalties. That yeah. I am hes a leading penalty killer. Yeah, that, that's why I that that that, it, yeah. that that mixed with the size. I mean, he's six four, Grizzlick's five ten. And I'm not saying this is what I would do necessarily, but I think Jim Montgomery is looking at that and going, Absolutely, I want uh this mean Forbert character in the lineup versus Grizzlick, who's uh you know, not getting power play time, not getting PK time. Um, So when I sort of, you know, just throw everything out there against the wall in terms of, okay, what makes sense uh, and eliminate basically half of the defense core before you, you even start thinking about things deeply. Uh, it's easy to get to Grizzly. And that, that's unfortunate. I think he's a, I don't know if underrated is the right way to put it, but He's a quality NHL defenseman. I mean, uh, there's no no reason he should be sitting out uh, under normal circumstances.
0: Yeah, I guess for these final twenty games or so, they're going to keep rotating guys because they have such a healthy cushion for the President's Trophy and the first seat in the East, right? And so it's kind of a luxury they've afforded themselves. I think they're going to load manage everyone, um, so that makes sense. But yeah, when you know, obviously there's a bit of a moot point if they do have an injury to one of those seven guys, and then you kind of have a more natural. Um, natural fit in terms of just putting all six of them in there i get it like you know they like Forbert on the penalty kill he does as i said lead the team in uh in penalty kill ice time on average he's got the size and i think nhl coaches are sort of reluctant to have uh, a defense pair that's constituted of two guys who have a very similar build in Grizzly and, and clifton right both guys are i think generously listed around 5 10 5, 11. now clifton I've often said on the PDO cast plays like he's six, four, like he, for my money, he plays a meaner game than Brandon Carlo. If you like just stripped away the name and how they look and everything. And you just watched what they do on the ice. It's like, wow, one guy is, is one of the most physical defenders in the league and other guys is really tall. Um, But I, I'm, I'm, I feel bad for Grizzly because he's played 59 games in his, uh, in his Bruins career in the playoffs in those games, they've been, he's been outscored 41 to 24 when he's been on the ice at five on five. And uh, there's been a lot made of his postseason struggles and how his game doesn't translate into the different playing environment once you get into the playoffs. And I get part of that argument, but it's really tough to reconcile with the fact that in those minutes, he has like a 55% expected goal share and just is having brutal luck. I think they're shooting like 5% or something as a team with him on the ice in those minutes. And I don't, watching those those games, I'm, I never came away thinking, wow, Matt Grizzlick is really killing this team offensively. Like that, It seems like it's much more of a sort of small sample size, random variance thing as opposed to something he's doing wrong. So it seems like he's kind of being punished for that as well. And, and I think that's a mistake because part of what makes his Bruins team so special and we could do like a full show listing all of all of the things they do incredibly well, right? Because they're about as flawless a team as you're going to get in today's NHL. I think Garnett Hathaway actually recently was asked about like kind of his Im- initial impressions on playing for the Bruins, what they do differently than what the Capitals were doing, like what makes them so effective. And he was saying it was like the fastest team he's ever either seen or played on, I forget which, which he said, um, through the neutral zone. And you see that in not necessarily how they skate, but how they how they operate, like they flip from defense to offense as quickly as anyone, right? Like they're so efficient doing so. And that's something Grizzlick is awesome at. Like he's such a good neutral zone defender despite being undersized. He's a very aggressive blue line defender. He doesn't allow you to carry the puck in. He also makes a beautiful first pass and like does these like beautiful regroups similar to what the Avalanche do so well, where like even if you clear the zone, he gets it. And instead of bringing it back into his own zone, he just quickly gets it back up for another zone entry opportunity for a forward. And so stripping that from the lineup, it's ultimately like an embarrassment of riches. And I don't think it's going to move the needle that much one way or another, but I do think it it is a bit of a suboptimal move to be taking him out of the lineup, just based on like the sp- particular skills he has.
1: Well, I guess the silver lining would be that you assume that Montgomery is going to tinker and you sort of mentioned it there in passing over down the stretch because this team is on a historic pace It would be silly not to throw Grizzly back in there, whether it's every other game, every third game or whatever, and see what mix uh, might be out there for him. Um, And I mean, another way to look at this, if you're Grizzly is like, how often do NHL teams go through the playoffs without getting a defenseman injured? You know, you see what the Leafs did, what they have nine NHL defensemen, if you want to like, quote unquote, uh, around uh, the NHL there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's, on purpose. I think it's not an accident. I think when when you look back at Cup champions, they get to probably defenseman eight usually. So grizzlick has got to you know at the very least keep that seven spot. I mean Zaboro and Riley are behind him, so I think that he's in pretty good shape there. But uh, it'll be interesting to watch because, it, like you said, it's like. Uh, you know, the rich got richer over this this trade deadline period. And it's such a first world problem that uh the Bruins might have here with
0: too many good defensemen. Well, I was going to bring up the Leafs, and part of why I was fascinated by this question was um, you know, the Leafs made a move on the blue line where they traded away Rasmus Sandine, who um You know, I I really like his game, and and he certainly, especially in like third when he's played third bare minutes, is just absolutely crushed, right? Like his underlying numbers are, are through the roof amongst the best in the league. And I don't think he necessarily does anything that would make me think, oh, he cannot play in a bigger role. And in instances where he's had to, I think he's looked perfectly fine. But I think the reason why the Leafs were comfortable trading a guy like him, especially ahead of this postseason, was they clearly felt like. They weren't confident in his ability to go back and play the pluck deep in his zone in a playoff setting, especially against a team like the Lightning or the Bruins in a playoff series, where you know they're going to be coming in on the forecheck check looking to take his head off. Right. And and they're concerned that his ability to make plays in those settings under that kind of pressure, it would lead to mistakes or he wouldn't be able to acquit himself as well as he maybe does in the regular season. And and that's that's like a that's not a unique thought process to either what the Bruins are thinking with Grizzlick or what the um what the Leafs are thinking with Sandy. And I think that's kind of like a general thing that a lot of teams are coming around to or at least thinking about. And so I think that's part of the calculus here as well. So I wanted to bring that up.
1: Well, and I think a lot of it is contextual in a sense that if we're talking about say Grizzlick playing on the second pair, I think that's less Of a a topic of conversation in terms of oh, how's he gonna handle the four check or if he's on the first pair for whatever reason? Like I think that coaches look at the third pair and just go, I want to not worry about this, this, these two guys. And I think Clifton certainly accomplishes that forbert. I guess uh, you know, uh, depends on your mileage with him, or your mileage may vary with him, but like it's relatively safe as far as uh you know, just doing the bare minimum, not getting scored on, hopefully and you know keeping turnovers uh, minimized and, and maybe Grizzlick, you look at it and go well he might bring up our ceiling offensively but what does it look like defensively and you know you, you point out that he's perfectly fine in a lot of uh, defensive situations but when you're the coach and you're going how about uh, you know when I don't know let's say it's the Leafs that end up playing him in the second round or something um, how does how does Grizzlick handle a forecheck of O'Reilly you know Tavares and and whoever's yeah. uh, else out there with them, so that, I think that's that's also a big part of this.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think the special teams utility is key too. You see it in like the the NFL, for example, with like how um, how teams like dress their running backs, right? Like which one which ones are the backups? Usually, they're the ones who have like some sort of um, like special teams utility, where they're either on the kickoffs or whatever, or they, or they can provide other value because they're they're probably not going to be as on the field in that case as often, unless there's an injury, right? And I think that kind of applies to a third pairing defenseman here, where forward's ability to just like chew up significant amount of thankless penalty kill minutes and just be out there and just like eating shots and, and kind of doing all that, all that dirty work is a big selling point I think here for them as well. Right. Cause like in an ideal situation, what's the five on five usage going to be like, if you have Orlov McAvoy and Lindholm, like you would ideally want those guys out there pretty much for as every minute possible. Right. And, and I'm really curious to see as well, like they've used Orlov and, um, and McAvoy mostly here since the trade. And and Orlov's been otherworldly, right? He has like three goals, I think six points. They're they're crushing with him. I expectedly he's fit right in in terms of the way they want to play. But I'm curious to see if they also experiment with just loading up Lindholm and McAvoy more now that they have Orlov, because I think Orlov could perfectly fine, can be perfectly fine with uh with Carlo on a second pair. So a lot of moving parts, a lot of options for them. I'm curious to see how it all plays out. Let's move on to the next question here from Mo. Um, you know, we were just talking about the best team in the league. Mo asks, outside the Coyotes, who are the franchises with the most depressing medium-term outlooks moving forward? It's so damning on Arizona that they're
1: included as sort of a, aside from the Coyotes, especially when you're t- we're talking about rebuilding teams mostly, right? That's yeah. that's not great. Um, I don't know about you, but I, do you look at medium-term as like three to four years or two to three years? Where are you at on sort of the time frame there?
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd say anywhere from like two to three up to five years. And then everything else after that is is long-term. And I'd say like the rest of this season and next year are like short-term. And then everything after that kind of falls into medium for me.
1: Okay. Just want to make sure there. And so if we're talking most depressing in terms of medium term, I think it comes down to like, does a team have a distinct committed plan? Mm -hmm. And so to put that in the context of the deadline that just passed, the capitals clearly have a plan here, right? They want to retool on the fly Um, They have Ovechkin for another three or four seasons as he chases the record. And they thought, okay, after not doing anything to our roster all season in the last couple of weeks, boom, let's go. Like, let's trade uh, basically every UFA that's remaining. And we're going to try and flip this over whether it works, who knows, but like, you got to commend them for having the plan and committing to it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of teams that, that don't necessarily fall into that bucket. Um, and that makes them depressing. And I, honestly, I think I think the Flyers is, is oh, yeah. the one; they're the one team that really jumps off the page. And I'll just throw a couple of reasons why. So, first of all, I don't look at the, whether it's their NHLers now or their prospects and see a bunch of superstars. Like I don't see a bunch of stars. Even like the the, the high end of the roster isn't very high. Um, the cap sheet is pretty messy. Um, You know, Fletcher, the GM, clearly misread the deadline, doesn't get anything for JVR. Uh, He goes into this 2023 draft with no second. Obviously, he can do something before the draft, Mm -hmm. but that's a a bit of a last-minute plan. Their prospect pool is okay. Uh, The Athletic had them as 14th uh, among the 32 teams recently. So, you know, not terrible, but, you know, you're not looking at it going, oh, they're really going to turn this thing around or there's a lot of optimism. And they have the eighth lowest points percentage, so they're not, you know, necessarily in a good spot to land a Bedard or a Fantilli. Uh, sure, they could. I mean, in this in in the draft lottery world, they they certainly could. But as we're talking right now, there's just so much to dislike about this Flyers team, and the light at the end of the tunnel is 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 not very bright. I'll say.
0: Yeah, I mean. I think uh, you hit all the key points there and yet somehow I came away from it being like, wow, John was being really nice because (laughs) it is, I feel like the general tone is like so much, it should be so much bleaker based on everything than the way, than the picture you painted where I was like, Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, John, they have one pick right now, as you mentioned in the top 45 or 50, depending on where Florida second rounder lines, I guess. Now they have an ability to acquire more at the deadline, but it's, Clearly, a suboptimal position for a team that's 25th in the league in point percentage. And that's another part of this conversation as well, where they've been one of the worst teams or like most hopeless teams in the league this season. But because there was a long time where Carter Hart was just playing out of his mind, and because John Tortorella has them playing like absolute max effort as if they are in a postseason all year, basically, they've like grinded out points that they had no business otherwise banking. And re- like really, they should be twenty eighth or 29th or thirtieth in the league and have higher odds of landing up at Dillier Pedard. But because of that, they're probably going to get like what the sixth or seventh best prospect, which is fine, of course, but not what you'd like to have to show for an otherwise miserable season. Um, You mentioned keeping JVR. I mean, that was that was obviously a mess. I I, I get that maybe the market just simply wasn't there, especially for a player who has a seven million dollar cap hit, which is a bit more difficult to navigate, but. I don't understand how a team like the Kraken or something who needs help on the power play. Like, I don't understand how they weren't like spending all of their time and resources, convincing them to at least give them like a third round pick or some sort of a B prospect for them. I mean, that seems like a no brainer. And part of this conversation as well is, you know, your own ability to rationally um, evaluate where you are, come to terms with it and act accordingly. Right. Like, I under, I know they put out that letter recently, right? That was kind of reminiscent of what the Rangers did. We saw uh, both Tortorella and Chuck Fletcher come out and you know essentially admit that they need to like rebuild and this is like a long term thing and and they're not necessarily entirely deluded by, by on how good they are. But actions speak louder than words, and you look at everything they did this past off season, and it just it's not reflective of a team that understands that, right? Like they bring in John Tortorella. They give a four-year contract with uh, with a modified no-move to Nicholas DeLaurier, which is just absolutely preposterous. They trade picks, valuable picks at that, for Tony D'Angelo, and then come out mid-season and say, whoa, we we're kind of surprised by how bad he is defensively, actually, as if they don't have any access to any public metrics that would just show you that he was like a bottom five-percentile defender last year, even when he was having a good year for the Hurricanes. Um you know, everything they've done is just is just runs polar opposite to what you expect from a traditional rebuilding team. And now you look ahead and they don't have much draft capital. They have twenty-three million dollars invested next season in a top four of Rasmus Line and Travis Sandheim, Tony D'Angelo, and Ivan Provorov. I I don't really see a quick way out here, right? Like who knows if Sean Couturier is ever gonna play again? Ryan Ellis almost certainly will never play again they have one star skater, in my opinion, in Travis connectney who had a fantastic bounce back season, but he's 26 and has two years left on his deal. Like he probably should be traded for futures because he's one of the few assets they have that's going to recoup significant ap- capital. So I don't, what's the way out over the next three or four years here without like a significant change in philosophy. Yeah. And before you transition to your
1: one of your teams, I just want to say a couple of things about Torella. Like this isn't coming from the sort of media side of things where it's like ah oh, he's you know mean to reporters or oh he doesn't give reporters time at the time of day. This is more from a creating uh, your own gong shows kind of <laughs> angle yeah. where you know like it, it seems like every other day you go on Twitter and you see a clip of Tortorella just either not giving information on like uh, a meaningless topic or not a meaningless topic, but just a, a a harmless topic or blasting one of his players or uh, acting like he didn't know Travis Sanheim uh, had a bunch of family coming to Calgary and then decided to scratch him. Um, Like, it's just, it's, it's a circus in a lot of ways. And I just feel like it's gotta be tiring to be part of that group. Like you're already losing and your coach is just, throwing gasoline on the fire all the time because whenever he makes some sort of comment obviously the reporters go to the players the next day or they hear from their family and friends about oh towards this towards that so again this isn't like me complaining about Tortorella as a media person it's just looking from the outside and going is this the right time for Tortorella to sort of be a uh, I guess uh, a hard ass for lack well, of a better word. No, of course. I mean, you, it.
0: you, it's like, what are you trying to accomplish as an organization, right? You look at, I understand that they're blessed with significant, like they're much ahead of them in terms of the timeline and, and they're blessed with significantly more young talent. But you look at what like a Don Granado's done in Buffalo, even dating back to last year, and you can like meaningfully point to the development the young players have had in terms of like him coming in and changing either how they're being used or what they're being asked to do and then getting the results to show for it from moving Tage Thompson to center to like, you know, they bring in, they pick up Tyson Joe top waivers and all of a sudden he's giving them very valuable defensive minutes. Casey Middlestad, all of a sudden I thought was just a complete throwaway. And at least he's giving them some production. Like there's stuff to point to there of like, Oh, he's, he's doing a good job now. There's, Another conversation to be had about Granado in terms of like, I hate how he pulls his goalie super late or, or there's been times where Uko Pekalukin and Herrera Kami are struggling and he just keeps them in there as opposed to switching switching them out and to try and salvage a game. Like whether he's the coach for them once they start playing playoff games and every little one of those margins matters, I think those are two different skill sets for a coach, but it's clear that for development and kind of on the way up, Granado is doing an unbelievable job and that's what I would be looking for from my coach if I was in that position, not someone to try to quote unquote change the culture of this team in, in all of these sort of outdated ways that don't actually reflect in the results. So um, there's a lot there on the flyers. Here's my team. It's gotta be the sharks. I I, I know that, you know, the, the Timo Meyer trade is good because they, even though I was underwhelmed by the return, at least they get a quantity of assets, right? They get that first, they get another potential for another first, they get prospects. That's good. If they had done that with Tomas hurdle at last year's deadline, I'd feel even better. Um, but, you know, that was a different management team. So you can't hold that against Mike Rear, of course. But you just look at the books and they have four more years at $8 million for Logan Couture after this one. Three more years at $7 million for Mark Edward Vlasic. Four more years at eleven point five on Eric Carlson, who I thought this was their best window to trade him and get legitimate assets back, even if it meant eating some of his salary for those four years. We'll see what happens at the draft and and what they're able to get back in return. Um, they're paying Brent Burns 2.72 million for two more years after this one. They've got four more years of Martin Jones's buyout. Like they have so much inefficient spending on their team and they don't have a top prospect pool to come in and produce on ELCs in the meantime, right? Like we just saw William Eklund come back and, and I'm excited to see him play on this team for the rest of the season, hopefully, but there's, there's not like this next wave that's immediate that's going to be like, all right, they're going to have these four or five really awesome rookies that are going to be on the team next year all, all, and instantly producing. It's going to be a couple more years of being 27th, 28th in the league and really struggling and just basically waiting for some of this money to expire. And so when you're thinking medium term for me, for the Sharks, I think the next three or four years are going to be just as painful as basically the last year or two have been.
1: Yeah, long term, I think... You can talk yourself into okay, if Greer plays his cards right over the next couple of years and is able to offload more contracts that and you know they land up a dart or Fantilli or Carlson or whoever at the top of the draft, then you go, okay, like they they got something to work with here. Um, uh, but medium term, it's it's there's gonna be a lot of pain there and a lot of losing. And it it's tough to lose when you have these guys with the big tickets. Uh, and and who knows, maybe this past season or sorry I should yeah I guess this this season that we're in um is it's a sign of things to come in terms of being able to get off bad contracts because it did happen a fair bit with salary retention but that's not exactly a great uh, a great path to go down because you only have so many retention spots and whenever you do that you're throwing assets out the door for the other team or teams uh to to feel comfortable doing it so it's similar to some of these other teams, like uh, the Predators that we've talked about in the past, where you, you, you tie yourself to the wrong core. You tie yourself to the wrong uh, players at the top of your lineup and pay them long-term these, you know, 8 million times, seven years, eight years. And they're just impossible uh, to turn around. They're impossible to get rid of. And, you know, not to make this all about the Predators, but I love what they did around the deadline because they finally said, okay, Let's turn the corner here. Let's do something different. Let's not bang our, our head against the wall. Um, but it's a similar thing with the Sharks where uh, good luck moving some of these contracts. So I think you're bang on there with the Sharks. It's uh, it's pretty bleak there. Uh, like, say, if you compare them to the Ducks, I, I even though the Ducks are horrendous to watch sometimes, especially on defense this season, mm-hmm. terrible underlying numbers, like just a lot to not like. At least they have the Zegerses and well, the McTavishes
0: and the Drysdales of the world. What I would also say with the Ducks, though, is like, and listen, no, I don't think anyone's been harder on them than me because I was excited to watch them this season and they've just been an utter mess in every way. If they win the Connor Bernard sweepstakes and they're going to change their coach and they bring up like an Zellweger, they Zellweger, even Pavel Minchikov, they bring up some of these guys they've drafted recently, like there's a very realistic range of outcomes for them as soon as next season, where I don't think they necessarily become a playoff team, but they go from being historically bad to like legitimately entertaining slash a pain to play against. Right. And, and I think that is within their range. I do not see that as a range of outcomes for the sharks. Cause you look and it's like Carlson's having this unbelievable throwback season. He's going to win the Norris this year. Timo Meyer was so productive for them. He was on pace for 45 goals before they traded him. And they were still, with those seasons, they were having still 27th or 28th in the league. Like, yeah, it's I, I don't oh. understand how that's going to get better. <laughs> like, it, it needs to get significantly worse still for them before it does get better. And so, you know, at least they've started that process. Like, there was a year ago, maybe or so, where they had all of these bad contracts, but also they had no picks. and And, and it was like, that was incredibly tough. At least now you can start seeing some of the light shining at the end of the tunnel but it's still a long process for them so i think the i think the sharks and the flyers are, are two really good picks here um okay john let's uh let's take our break here and then when we come back we will keep answering uh the listener questions you're listening to the hockey cast streaming on the Sportsnet radio network all right we're back here in the hockey cast with john mattis taking your listener questions so john here's the next one Mo asks, or sorry, no, we did we did Mo's question. We did Mo's question on the Coyotes. My bad. Um, Asan here asks: In a conference full of pretenders, is Edmonton now the best team in the West after their addition of Matias Ekholm?
1: I think the short answer is yes, probably. Um, and then the longer answer is that I think it's between Edmonton, uh, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've yet to see them really at full, full health and full boost. Um, And Dallas is certainly in the conversation. I mean, one thing we can't discredit here is the Jake Ottinger effect. Uh, Just phenomenal last year during the playoffs. Hasn't missed a beat this year. You know, Edmonton questions in goal. Colorado, obviously, Gorgiev's been good. But, but, you know, is he up to to snub as far as Ottinger and the standard he's set? And, like, I don't know. I just look at Dallas' lineup, and I really like their forward group. Uh, whether it's that top line that that you know you wax poetic about a lot Mm -hmm. for Robertson Pavelski hints I really like what Ben Wyatt Johnston and either Dadanov or Delandria have been able to do this year Uh, their D I I would say as a group is good but not excellent Um, but they're in a conference that's quite weak I think Dallas needs to be up there Um, so I'd say those three are sort of in the running with Edmonton, uh, you know, the slightest of edge because of Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Um, And obviously I did like the, the Ekholm acquisition as, as did, you know, 99% of the hockey community. Yeah. And then I think I'd put uh, the Winnipeg Jets, maybe a tier below those other three
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, with, with Halibut having that, that X factor ability. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, look at Vegas and go, okay, how can I talk myself into, Including them in this discussion as, as best in the West, but I don't know, man. With with Mark Stone likely not playing, it's obviously foggy, but it's not looking great. With the goaltending, you know, question marks and and just them being depleted a little bit with depth over the years. Um, although I did like the Barbashev acquisition, I just can't, in good conscience, put them uh, up at top. Uh, what do you
0: think? Yeah, I mean, the, the Mark Stone situation is obviously the X factor. I would, I would still. Them above Winnipeg. Um, I would put them in that tier with Dallas. Um, I think it's clearly Edmonton and Colorado. I would still, maybe potentially foolishly, but I would still put Colorado atop there just in the case that they do get actually healthy and we for once see everyone they have in the lineup at the same time, which we haven't yet this season. We'll see. Um, some of the sort of rhetoric around Gabriel Landeskog is obviously concerning, but honestly, I I've said this a couple times in the podcast throughout, uh, i never expected to see him this regular season. So I'm not necessarily alarmed by some of the talk that he hasn't really come close to getting ready to return yet. I still think he'll come back for the postseason, And if he does and their blue lines healthy, they clearly have the highest upside um, in terms of what they're capable of. I For the Oilers, there's an important conversation here to be had about like Jack Campbell cannot play anymore for them. I I think they need to send him down to the AHL and, and get him some some game time away from NHL competition and away from the pressures of the situation Um, to try and sort of get him back on track if they can, right? Like, I, I don't think the fact that they've invested so much in him for the five-year deal or whatever... Should factor into the decision making of force feeding him starts here because there's too much on the line. And you know we saw a team like the LA Kings, for example. And I know it's a, a bit of a different circumstance, but you look at the investment they made in Cal Peterson, and they were like, "We, like he cannot play for us right now. Like we had, all of these points are too valuable, and he's just not giving us enough of a chance to win." And so they sent him down, and they're just they're they're biting the bullet. But it's already a sunk cost, right? I I, I think he has a much better chance of figuring it out for the future down there that, as opposed to sitting on the bench at the NHL level or just having these catastrophic performances time and time again and look at Campbell negative 25.4 goals save Ooh. above expected in 32 games Um, last five games he's played the Oilers as a team have scored 23 goals in five games and they have not won any of those games uh, like I, I, it's it that's unacceptable right like it, you, you cannot keep doing that and so I'm very curious to see how they handle that. If you look at their schedule the rest of the way, they only have two back-to-backs left, I believe. And they both one of them involves the Coyotes in the front end of it and the other one involves the Ducks on the back end of it. And honestly, I think you could easily call up another goalie, send Campbell back down, give them those two starts or whatever if you don't want to be just completely riding uh Stewart Skinner into the ground and go that route. And 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 I'm curious to see if they do do that. I'm not sure if if they're going to be willing to um, kind of accept the feet already at this point. But I think that's what I would do if I were them, because they just, they cannot play them anymore right now. It were,
1: yeah. It remains to be seen if it was a wise choice by the Kings to send Peterson down, but it was kind of, their hand was kind of forced um, to an extent. I guess there's a lot of teams I wouldn't have sent them down, but I thought it was at least them thinking outside the box, at least trying to rectify the situation, make it better. And with Jack Campbell, I, I think you're totally on to something. I think it makes the most sense in a vacuum to send him down um, with that market and with, you know, uh, people talk talked endlessly about Jack Campbell and his highs and lows. Like you wonder how that affects him, the demotion, but you kind of can't be thinking about that stuff. Are you trying to win a cup or not? So I think it, it would certainly uh, make headlines, would certainly uh, be a quote unquote bold decision in the realm of the NHL. But I think it's you're spot on in terms of the tactic there. Like Stuart Skinner's your guy, Jack Campbell's broken. Let's try to fix this at least to some extent heading into the playoffs so that Campbell can back up Skinner. And you don't feel like if if push comes to shove and you have to throw him out there, that it's the complete last resort. You want to have some semblance of of confidence. And you know, you brought you brought up the sunk cost. I mean, this guy is around for another handful of years like four
0: years after this one yeah
1: four years so i mean it's either you bite the bullet now with trying to rehabilitate him so to speak uh build up his game again and get his confidence back all that good stuff um or you wait till the off season and who knows where he'll be at then so i think that's a that's a smart approach i like
0: i don't know though you watch and i understand it was the second of a back-to-back so like they throttle winnipeg at home right on friday i believe and then on saturday Saturday night on Hockey Night in Canada, they're playing in Winnipeg and they go to Jack Campbell. And it's just like, they had no chance. Like, some, like you just watch some of the shots and they're going, I get it. It's like, man, this must be so demoralizing. And, and so I don't, I'm not one to predict a goalie performance or what it takes to get them back on track or what work what will work and what won't. Um, I'm sure it goes on like a very deep individual level, but I don't know how exposing them to that environment and situation in terms of just watching them kind of give up these these soft goals, time and time again, how that's going to eventually regain his confidence. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that does not seem like an optimal approach. Now, Jeff, uh, Stuart, I want to keep calling him Jeff Skinner. I got, I got, I, got, I, got, I, got <laughs> I, 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 I have Buffalo Sabres brain. I, uh, does come out all the time. Yeah. Stuart Skinner's already up to 36 games. Since going pro a handful of years ago, he's played 47, 44, 32, and 48 games. Um, I think the Oilers have every right to be hoping to be playing somewhere between 12 and 20 playoff games. And so with the amount they have left this regular season, I think that would be a valid concern of, okay, we don't want Stuart Skinner getting up to 60 plus games this season uh, because he's never really done it before. He did it in major junior like once, I believe, but this is an entirely different animal, right? And so you want to keep him as fresh as possible because he's clearly going to be the person you need to rely on if you are going to make a long playoff run. So they still are in a race, right? Like they can't be just like punting valuable points away, but they do need to take a bit of a longer term view for the rest of the season in terms of getting their lineup set for game one of the postseason. So there's a lot, a lot of a uh, lot of factors there and a lot of things at play, but if they can figure that out at all, and if, if it is going to be Stuart Skinner net for them, I, I do like the Oilers team quite a bit, especially after that Colm addition He's just been, he's like a perfect player for what they needed. So um yeah, that uh, that answers the son's question there. All right. Ryan asks, based on what we know about Jacob Chikrin and his game, who do you see as the best fit as his long-term defensive partner in Ottawa?
1: So I think like if we look at the rest of the defense core and, and work backwards from there, I think Shabbat with Zub makes almost too much sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want Zub to keep Shabbat honest. You want to allow Shabbat to, to roam around. So I think long-term, you know, without knowing what's going to happen in terms of development with some of these players, like that seems to make a ton of sense. So you rule that out in terms of, you know, he's not going to play with Shabbat. He's not going to play with Zub. And then you get the Sanderson and Hammonick on the second pair right now. And Chikrin and Branstrom are on the third pair, at least according to the last lineup. And I mean, Hammonick and Brandst- is Hammonick is a, a UFA. So I think, you know, it would be... Uh, highly possible, or or there's a very high chance that Hamadik's not here next year. So, if you take him out of the equation, I think if you want to load up your top two pairs, so to speak, um, and if you can find between Sanderson and Chikrin one of them that prefer not prefers the right side, but is comfortable, then I think that's an option. Sanderson and Chikrin, and then you have Shipbot and Zub, and then you figure out your third pair in, in some other way. Um, another way to look at it would be uh, you keep Sanderson and Chickran apart and you find you know a more reliable not necessarily reliable but a right shot to play with Chiran who's either on free agency I mean does Connor Clifton end up on, in free agency that'd be a nice fit there um, there's obviously a bunch of other righties that that will end up there that maybe you find someone uh, at a bargain price um, and there's also you know sort of the, is there someone in your system that's sort of a Nick Purbix uh, type? So obviously for people who don't know who haven't been following the Tampa Bay lightning, Nick Purbix was a, a six round pick. He played three or four years of, of college and then slid right into the NHL basically uh, and has been a, in a top four role and, you know, kind of meat and potatoes defenseman, but you know, can skate. He's a modern guy. He's not an anchor by any means. And Tampa has been able to just use his, his cheap, contract to to fill a spot in their top four and not really miss a beat it's not perfect but um i wonder well, if thanks, there's someone things in... are
0: going famously well with the tampa bay lightning right well, now. well right now but i'm yeah, talking yeah. about the whole no season. i know yeah I'm not,
1: I'm just... not a fun weekend for uh for no. Lightning players but those are my three options basically sanderson where one of them goes on the right side uh two would be you know is there a perfect sky in your system and three would be free agency are you going to be able to find you know uh cheap-ish op- option for your second or third pair that can play with Chickren, uh
0: or Sanderson? Hmm. So they started in his debut against the Rangers on the road. They started him with Nick Holden, and he played majority of minutes there. Um, then the next game at home against the Blue Jackets, they played him with Eric Brandstrom, both on the third pair, although I believe they ramped up his minutes. Uh, and in the second game, he was like third on the team. Chikrin was in 5 5 usage. So you know, the, the the pairing designation is kind of irrelevant in the sense. And if anything, it's great because you want to tone down uh Thomas Shabbat's minutes a little bit to try to optimize efficiency. He just plays way too much and has for years. I I'm on the record. I I, I really like the idea of him and Sanderson because part of Chikrin's game that I think he needs help with is having someone who's a bit more fluid in terms of breaking the puck out of the zone. I think he's got a nice first pass, but if that breaks down, he, I don't really want him freelancing much. Whereas Sanderson is such a fluid skater that he can kind of handle those responsibilities quite a bit. So I actually think in a way pairing Chikrin with like a traditional puck mover is actually the way to go here. Even though he does, he, he does play a bit of a risky game in the offensive zone where he goes down below the dots and he tries to get involved in the offense and go for those backdoor tap ends and use his shot and all that. I, I, I still like him with someone who can move the puck. Um, And and in this case, you know, both him and Sanderson are such great rush defenders that it's like a very interesting pair to be able to throw out against other teams, you know, most electric skaters and they can keep up with them. The, the inspired answer here is Jake Sanderson with one of them moving to the right side. The wired answer here is bringing Eric Carlson back this summer. Oh baby, Chickren and Carlson? Yes, yes. That's wow. that that that's that's the dream. And, I, and obviously, there's there's tons wow. of loopholes to go through. I'm not even sure what what the interest there would be on on both parties. I but I just uh, I'm throwing that out there is a very Interesting option for me. I mean, the vibes around this team are are so good. I don't want to I don't want to get carried away because they still have a lot of work to do to even qualify for the playoffs as the second wildcard team, right? They're four points back of the Islanders. They have three games in hand on them. They're tied with the Sabres, who have a game in hand on them, and they're three points back of the Penguins with the same number of games played. You look at their schedule, there's like two or three kind of relatively easy games against the Blackhawks and I think the Flyers, but the rest of it is is pretty tricky. Like I think both them and the Sabres have really tough upcoming schedules. So I'm curious to see how they handle that, but the vibes are very good right now, right? Like it's two games in, you don't want to get carried away, but Chikrin is clearly incredibly happy about his change of scenario. And actually, I guess, finally getting to play hockey after missing eight games and sitting from the press box and waiting for a year and a half for this situation to get resolved. And if the the opener at home uh, with his debut against the blue jackets, is any indication. And I know that's not necessarily representative of what it's going to be like moving forward. Cause the blue jackets are, are a mess themselves, but the the market and the fan base seems to be quite happy with Jacob Chikrin as well. Right. So it seems like it's a really nice match made in heaven. And I'm very curious to see how the, how the rest of the season and then heading into the summer goes for them.
1: Well, I'm really happy for the sense fan base too. I mean, it's been a uh, rough, I don't know, since 2017. Uh, what is that? Six, seven years. It's been tough. And this obviously was a, a big win for them as far as the uh, underwhelming package that went out the door for Chikrin, mm-hmm. uh, and just the fact that he has ties to the to the area, I think that helps in terms of keeping the guy happy, in terms of um, you know making him marketable, all that good stuff. And yeah, the fit's been uh, small, really small sample size, but the fit's been nice. The the vibes are immaculate, so. Well, um, it turns- even even if this even if the Sens don't make the playoffs, I think this has just been it hasn't been a perfect season by any means. They've had pretty poor stretches there, um, but if they can end strong and they just happen to miss the playoffs by a few points, I mean, you got to go into the offseason feeling pretty good about yourself if you're a Sens fan.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I really like the move. I love the price they paid to get it, and um, I think he's an awesome player who's going to fit great and gives them a lot of options. Uh, you know, regardless of what they do, if they want to just keep. Spreading out those three pairs and, and playing him with a guy like Eric Branstrom. I think that'll be totally fine, especially if that incentivizes DJ Smith to, to trust Eric Branson a bit more. I'm all for that. Um, and if they wind up loading up that top four in whatever capacity, I think that'll work. That'll play just as well, too. So um, good times ahead. OK, let's end on this note. So Iron Kaniac asks, if you exclude media hype and just go by production and underlying metrics, is it accurate to say that the Hurricanes don't have any superstar players? Or are there Hurricanes players that are just as good as the quote-unquote media-dubbed superstars are, um, but they don't get the same recognition? Now, you and I are both, I guess, members of the media, right? So it seems yep. like Aaron, Aaron Kaniak here is is, is blaming us for, for the perception. <laughs> um, but it is an interesting conversation, right? Because the Hurricanes certainly, compared to other top teams and I, I noted this. If it weren't for the the year the Bruins were having, we'd all be talking about the fact that the Hurricanes are on pace for like 120 plus points or something this season themselves. They definitely do it by more of a sort of balanced approach, right? Even if you look at the usage um, up front, like Sebastian Aho plays 19 and a half minutes or something, and then everyone else is like 18 or under. Like it, it's it's much more of a of a of a balanced approach in that regard. They're clearly not just leaning on one pair or one line up front and I think that certainly has a bit to do with it like Marty Natchez leads the team in points and he's 40th in the league Sebastian Ajo's 53rd um so I, I I think that it's kind of as simple as that um but I'm kind of curious for your take on this and sort of the players that we attribute superstar status to and then how that kind of um ties into team success and and all that good stuff yeah I mean if we're talking legitimate superstars. I don't know if Aho would make the cut. I mean, he's obviously
1: uh, a superstar in a lot of ways through the the lens of a hockey nerd. Right. And same with, you know, a, a Jacob Slavin. But if we're talking about like being realistic and looking across the league, I just don't think he would make that cutoff. And, you know, it's always bugged me how often we use, and I, I loop myself into this. I'm not, um, you know, innocent completely, but like the way we use the word superstar is, kind of outrageous like we just throw it out here and there and everywhere um I think star you can you know one or two guys per team per average like I think that makes sense but you know what makes a superstar and I was thinking about it in the context of this question and it's like okay if it should be a pretty rare thing then you know should it be reserved for 15 players which is roughly like two percent of the league should it be for like 20 players um because I think that it, 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 it should be one of those labels that are rare. And I realize, you know, I'm maybe overthinking it, like it ultimately doesn't matter. It's just a word. But the the questioner uh, is certainly interested in it. And I think, you know, if you keep it to, to 20 players and also factor in, I think superstars probably should have some flash to them, should have some track record to them, kind of that not necessarily a brand, but like an on ice um. I guess uh, just they jump off the page on the ice. Um, then you, you get to 20 names fairly quickly. And I don't think a, you know an Ajo or a Slavin uh, quite make the cut, but that doesn't mean that they're not, you know, in the star tier or that the hurricanes don't have, you know, a handful of quote unquote stars and that they can't go on a long run. Right. So it's an interesting question.
0: Well, I think there's a, there's a distinction to be made though. Right. Like I, I don't think it's, a meritocracy in the sense that we don't update our opinions on this often enough, right? So like once you become a superstar in our eyes, uh, whether it's like nationally or, or in the media's eyes or what have you, the way players are talked about. It's, it's really tough to shake that. Like It's like for years, even if their production doesn't necessarily merit it anymore, these guys are still viewed and talked about as superstars, articles are written about them. The focus is major, majorly placed on them. And, and so maybe in that way, we are kind of responsible as media members because we are the ones driving that conversation, right? We're the ones writing the story. You'd like to think that it's based on a meritocracy of, okay, well, this guy's playing really well. People want to read about them, so we're going to write the story. But for the most part, it's just kind of the same names over and over again. And it's really tough to break into that circle. I would say that the superstars on this Hurricanes team are are, are Rod Brindamore and Eric like I Like the, the, <laughs> the, the, the infrastructure they yep. have in place in terms of the way they operate, the fact that they can bring anyone in or at least a certain type of player in and get maximum results out of them and then view it as a business where... As soon as that player, like their value to the team doesn't match up with what they're going to be paid, they're just going to move on and find the next guy, right? And for better or for worse, that's clearly what they keep doing. And so that's the way I would view it. Now, I would say Slavin and, and, and Aho are certainly stars. I would say Marty Nature's and, and Svechnikov have incredibly bright futures and they're budding stars. None of these guys are quote unquote superstars, but I would, we throw that term around, and you're right, way too loosely. Like there's probably between 10 and 20 actual superstars, and instead, anyone who's like everyone gets viewed that way right so um yeah i i think you know the hurricanes and i think the hurricanes are totally fine with that not that they're flying under the radar or anything but like they're perfectly fine winning games and banking points right now and and they're gonna have to get over a hurdle in the playoffs which they haven't yet and so um i think doing that as well will also change the perception quite a bit i imagine nationally
1: well and i think If you're listening and you're a Hurricanes fan, you're going, "Oh man, we don't have any superstars, or our only superstars are our coach and our assistant GM."
0: That's not Um, bad. I mean, I I mean, the sustainability of that is much better than banking on a player who could get hurt at any point.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say if your identity is tied to the coach, and it's actually like a very good coach who's very uh, sort of direct and like this is what we do, this is how we play, and it's effective and it takes you places. Sure, they haven't won a cup, but one of the best run organizations uh, they know exactly the type of player they want and they go out and get them. Um, like you said, with Tolski, they're kind of ruthless in some ways in terms of letting guys go or just circling a name and getting it. Um, so it's actually, it's kind of a backhanded compliment. I would say that Rod Brindamore is the face of the franchise and that's that could lead to a cup. It uh, doesn't mean that, you know, if, like if you say the Oilers as an example, obviously McDavid is the face of the franchise and it could lead to a cup, but there certainly is a lot of uh, uneasiness in, in that market because you look at the rest of uh, the team, the organization and go, is it all figured out here? Obviously we got dry side and we got other pieces, but like, is the stability there? And I think in Carolina, there's no question the stability mm-hmm. is is quite there.
0: Okay, John, we, uh, we're we out of time here. we got to get out of here. I'll give you quickly an opportunity to just let the listeners know where they can check out.
1: Yeah, sure. So on Twitter, I'm M-A-T-I-S-Z-J-O-H-N. So just my last name, my first name, and uh, it's the best place to check out my stuff. I tweeted out and um, just fired up for, for the, the stretch drive here, Dimitri. Like what a crazy, you know, few weeks there. You could even go back to the Horvat trade and just nonstop news. And it's
0: nice to now settle in and start watching these new players on new teams. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I echo that entirely. All right, John, this is a blast. We're going to have you back on soon. Thank you to the listeners for listening to us. If you enjoy what you heard, go smash that five-star button wherever you listen to the show. And we'll be back tomorrow with more of the Hockeypedio Cat streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.